You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Hi, I'm Anna Rispin, Content Marketing Manager at Intercom. In this episode, our co-founder, Des Trainer sits down with one of user experience design's leading thinkers, Andy Budd. Andy is a co-founder and the managing director of ClearLeft, a UX design consultancy in Brighton, England. Both a visual designer and front-end developer by trade, Andy's book CSS Mastery has been translated into a dozen languages. Having started the popular design conferences Deconstruct and UX London, he's constantly promoting and pushing his craft forward. Des was able to get Andy's take on why young startups tend to prioritize development over design. A lot of people still see designers as stylists and still see designers as as people that make things that are pretty. And if your product is, is pretty, they think that's all the problem solved. How external design expectations and internal design budgets have become so misaligned. Now when you commission a digital product, there's so much more involved in it that is just expected. But people's expectations of cost hasn't risen to accommodate that. Where Andy stands on agile software development. The idea of iterating, um, the idea of having flexibility of process, all of those things are really, really good. Unfortunately, on the basis of those foundations, a lot of agile practices have emerged, which are often anything but agile. It's an in-depth look at how meaningful investment in UX design can lead startups toward consumer-friendly, high-growth product. And with that, I'll hand things over to Des. Welcome to Inside Intercom. Thanks so much for joining us, Andy. Um, it's a pleasure. It's really nice to have the opportunity to chat. Yeah, it's been a while. Maybe for the sake of our listeners, could you just introduce yourself quickly and tell us a little bit about your career? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, so my name is Andy Budd. I am the managing director, one of the co-founders of a uh, consultancy in Brighton called ClearLeft. We were one of the sort of first uh, agencies in the UK to sort of specialise and be dedicated into the field of user experience design. Um, so when we started in 2005, there were lots of people practising usability and information architecture, but none of them had kind of really sort of staked their claim on the kind of the UX space. And we were really good friends with our, our chums over at Adaptive Path. We saw what they were doing and we wanted to bring that kind of slightly deeper, more considered design thinking into a realm where at the time the average agency would like the first thing they do is open up Photoshop and start moving things around on screen. Um, so that's kind of where we come from. I think we sort of morphed over the years as user experience has grown up into basically a digital product and service sort of design agency. So we help you know a whole range of clients, large and small, startup and traditional, you know, tackle thorny business problems to you know ultimately produce some kind of new product or service. And you've, your agency has spun out a few products in that time as well, right? We have, yeah. I mean, for us, it's more been um, scratching our own itch. I think a lot of agencies sort of try and deliberately diversify their uh, their income because you know of, obviously agency income can be a little bit kind of bumpy at times, and you can often only prepare more than kind of a model more than three months in advance. So I think a lot of agencies have kind of maybe been seduced by the the, the 37 signals approach of, well, let's move from an agency to a product company. You know, I mean, sort of where you guys, I guess, um, Mm -hmm. came from as well. But I think it's really difficult to do both and do both well. We never really sort of plan to do that. Like what we've done with our products is... We've seen things that we felt needed to be solved in the market and we just, no one else was coming along doing them, so we did them ourselves. So the first one was a product called Silverback, which is a low-cost usability testing app for the Mac. Back in the day, you had to like use video cameras and microphones and it was all very inefficient. And so we created a really small little tool 
which we sell very, very cheaply, um, basically to democratise usability testing. But it's been really well received by the community. It's been used by everybody from like NASA to Twitter to the Obama for, you know, presidential campaign. Intercom too? And, in, and Intercom, yes. Yeah. So it's a lovely little tool, but we never set out to make it a big money selling business and we succeeded. You know, it's basically there to kind of cover its maintenance costs because we want it to exist. And there are other competitors out there that were charging, you know, like $1,000, $1,500. And that was making it difficult for small teams to test their stuff. So we wanted to put something out there that was, I think it's like 79 bucks. It covers its development fees. Well, uh, when we spoke last time, we were talking a bit about, you mentioned how startups can be like traditionally tech heavy. They start off, you know, often by developers and they create great places for the technologists to work. But for designers in those areas, it might not be a great place to be because you tend to be beholden to whatever's being built and you're trying to catch up with developers with your design work. Has the sort of more recent trend of popular designer founders changed any of this, do you think? Like when we look at, say, Stuart Butterfield Slack or Evan at Pinterest or Scott Belsky at Behance, like they're all like designers true and true who've created like successful companies. Do you think that they're like still the anomaly and that the majority of the time startup is a place where like it employs a designer as a not as an afterthought but as the last step in a process? I think it's definitely getting better, but I still think there's a, a good way to go. Um, I mean, the, the, the challenge with bringing designers early on is I think a lot of people that start sort of tech businesses often come from. Um, either they come from a business background and they've got a great entrepreneurial idea and if they're from that level the thing they absolutely need is a developer you know there's no point being an entrepreneur and having a designer but no product that you can actually get people using was it's relatively easy to kind of find a you know designer from dribble or or wherever um, contract designer get them to come in do a little bit of design work but having that kind of technical capability in-house to actually build it to spend three or four months kind of pushing it forwards so I'm still seeing lots and lots of companies start up that have a bias towards business and technology that resource their design needs relatively from a light touch and often it's only when they're two three four five years in maybe when they've kind of raised a couple of rounds of funding and the demands of the um, the fundraisers or the, the, the VC people are kind of putting more pressure on them to release better quality products and services. Do they really start doubling down on, on the importance of design? But I've long believed that, you know, it used to be 10 years ago that the, the competitive advantage you had with a startup was all in the technology. You know, that was where the investment was, that was where the IP was. I think with the rise of um, cloud computing, the rise of libraries and platforms, et cetera, et cetera, and the rise of outsourcing, with the exception of artificial intelligence, which I think is becoming the new USP, the new defensible property, um, I think design is still one of the few areas where you can make a big impact. Because the reality is, you know, Slack is successful not because it was the first comms tool or because it had the best technology stack. It's because it provided the best user experience. Dropbox is the same. You know, people have delivered file sharing software and management software for years and years and years, but Dropbox did it well and did it better. The USP is in the design of the system. And so I think that is still hugely valuable, but I think it takes companies a long time to realise that. And I've had plenty of conversations with founders where... They've got a 60, 70, 80 person strong development team and a a UX or design team of one, two or three. And because of that, because the design isn't inbuilt into the DNA of the organisation, and it definitely isn't 
built into the DNA of the founders if they come from a business and tech perspective, it can be quite difficult for them to know what good design looks like, to know who to hire, and to bake that culture into the company that will attract the right designers. And so I constantly see new startups struggling to kind of you know, they, they might get the product market fit for the early adopters, but they can't produce the level of quality that's required to make it a really consumer-friendly, high-growth sort of commercial product. And I think, I think that's still a, a tough place to be at the moment. It's interesting. Like, one, one concern I always have when I hear of, like, uh, companies that have evolved that way is it's hard to retrofit design into it. Because it's not just about, like, you, you could hire, like, literally the best designers. You could hire, like... Johnny Ive and everyone else and stick them into like an 80 person development team but like the whole process and mindset and approach and meetings and you know office environment all needs to change to accommodate this so it is kind of I don't I wouldn't say it's unrecoverable but like it's not even just a case of teach them how to hire good designers there's more going on right Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, at the end of the day, the founders for a very, very long time, for the first four, five, six years, have an amazing influence over the culture of the company and their values become the values of the company. And so if as a founder you prioritise investment into technology over investment into design, then that is going to seep through all the levels and all the layers of your organisation. And when you get to that stage... You know, if you've got your CTO coming saying, well, we need to hire three, four more developers and you get, you know, your your UX team of one saying, well, I need to have a second person in design, you're often going to prioritise the areas that you know the best and you know what capabilities three or four extra developers will give you. And you might look at your website and go, well, hey, people are using it. It looks OK to me. I don't really get why well, you need another designer. We're going to invest in, in this area over here. Um, but I think a lot of it is, is kind of, uh, you know, a, a, lot of, a lot of people don't understand the value that design brings. And I think a lot of people still see designers as stylists and still see designers as, as people that make things that are pretty. And if your product is, is pretty, they think that's all the problem solved. Whereas I see designers as adding a huge amount of value and actually adding it fairly on in the process. Like, I actually kind of advocate hiring the best designers you can afford at the start. And once you solve the really tricky existential business problems, then you can kind of like let those designers go and bring in a more junior team who can evolve and maintain and support the product as it kind of goes through its sort of middle phases, rather than start with a super cheap designer. Because I've seen it happen time and time again. Companies, they hire a really cheap designer, they do a bad job, they launch it, they're not getting the traction they need. Six months later, they realise it's probably the design that isn't working. They try another person that's slightly better. And they might go through two, three, four, five full starts before they get a product that is really flying. And they could have avoided all of that kind of lost traction and, and lost time in the market had they just gone and got a great design team together in the first place. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's down to kind of what you value, I guess, and your understanding of the value design can bring. One thing you wrote about a while ago, and like it's fascinating to see Clearleft as being like a 10-year-old or 11-year-old agency, in that period, we've seen basically software go through another sort of renaissance of sorts where like, we're, I think genuinely the best design products are starting to win. Like best design, assuming they hit traction in a few other various criteria, but like all else equal, uh, design is, is a massive, massive influence. So you could sort of say like the ROI of design has proven itself pretty well over the last while. But you've noticed that like investment in design, and you're talking, I guess, particularly as an agency owner, you're probably seeing it on the budgeting side. 
Is it the case that people aren't still like, you know, whilst consumers' expectations of high quality software is growing and growing and growing, especially like post iPhone, most software people use is actually impeccably designed. So the expectation is growing, uh, the reward is growing, but what doesn't seem to be growing is the budget. What's going on there? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I don't think it's just from an agency perspective. I'm seeing it in in-house teams. I'm seeing it in startups as well. I think there's this weird cognitive dissonance going on where cause I think a lot of it is down to where design is valued within an organisation versus who are making the financial decisions. And often those two are not tied. So you're getting people who are commissioning design services from an agency or people, you know, the design leads who's trying to hire a team. And they're now seeing all the additional kind of stuff that was once a delighter or a, a kind of a performance kind of payoff sort of element has now become like a basic sort of fundamental requirement. You know, it used to be the case that, you know, caring about the, the speed of the interface was an unusual thing. Optimising for mobile, you know, responsive design, mobile and, and tablet-based views. All of this kind of stuff used to, you know, once be like an added extra. Now it's become a fundamental. So now when you can a digital product there's so much more involved in it that is just expected but people's expectations of cost hasn't risen to accommodate that so i think a lot of the time if people are in this kind of horrific kind of like redesign every five years kind of mentality they'll look back at what the cost was five years ago they maybe add 10 or 20 percent for inflation and then they assume that that's going to be the budget this year because the people that are often making these budget decisions are not savvy buyers they don't know how far the and how fast the industry's moved on they don't know the kind of the new required sort of expectations they don't fully understand what the consumer market are looking for as well and so the budgets are often being set and they're often being set independently you know the budget will be set by the finance team without ever kind of talking to the designers and developers to understand well actually how long is this stuff going to take and I think it's true internally as well you know like the internal team will say well we want this thing delivered in six months time and often that deadline has no relationship to any kind of agile story planning point scoring planning poker type activities and then what ends up happening is the design team and the development team has to try and squeeze in everything that the organization has asked for in an unrealistic deadline to meet a kind of like an arbitrary goal whether it's um hitting a kind of a financing milestone or the you know a particular board meeting or a particular client coming on board and then they have to try and squeeze all this stuff in because often the people who are making those decisions don't understand what's truly involved in creating great world-class software so so it's a challenge and i think the other thing is it's inevitable but the people that have budget command more responsibility so in traditional organizations that responsibility often comes to the cto that will have usually a much bigger team than the design team it will come to the marketing team who are spending very very large amounts of money on social media campaigns above the line and below the line advertising and sadly, the design team often has a really, really low budget. And so they have really low status in the pecking order and find it really difficult to kind of, you know, demand significantly more because they've, they've got used to making do on, on quite low, slim pickings anyway. So it just becomes a kind of a cyclic problem. But what, what's happening, and I think this is really positive and it is starting to change quite a lot, I think, thanks to startups, but also thanks to kind of traditional companies in California is... The people that were once the doers, the people who were once the makers, the people who were front-end developers, back-end developers, designers, are now slowly finding themselves in position of authority, are finding themselves head of design, head of technology, you know, startups, Facebook, Twitter, you know, a lot of people in these kind of companies I know have kind of worked their way up the ranks. 
And now they're able to be having those budget conversations. They're being able to say, well, no, look, you know, marketing needs to be in the service of design, not necessarily design in the service of marketing. We need to focus on creating a great product. And if we create a great product and we invest in a great product, then the marketing cost will be less rather than the traditional company is we've got a really mediocre product. How do we convince people to part with money? Oh, well, we have to do a big marketing campaign to make the product seem better than it actually is. So those tables are being turned. And I think marketing is now being more at the service of design and more at the service of product and these decision makers are finding their way into organizations you know um, they're becoming cxos cdos they're having you know vps they're having kind of board level influence and so it's positive but the rest of the world is slowly catching up um, right. and until that happens there still be this power dynamic which is difficult to shift you talked about um budgeting there you mentioned how people should estimate workload and you talked about things like scrums or, or sprints or user stories or any other sort of stuff. One thing I can't work out about you is if you have a, a love-hate or a hate-hate relationship with agile development. Um, on one hand, like recently you mentioned that it's like it's excellent as a sort of executional machine. So when you know exactly what you need to do, then sure, agile is the way to iterate quickly and get there. But you said it's kind of it's weak in terms of strategy because of all the, what you call the, the shearing layers that are involved, which is I think is a phrase you borrowed from architecture. It's got to do with like the many different layers of, of a building or whatever. And I presume in, in this case, you're talking about like the difference between you know the decision of what market are we in and what product are we building, what job are we solving, all the way down to like what are we doing this week, right? It feels like someone needs to build, or like within organizations, there is a bridge to be built between, say, like the daily scrum and what we're going to do today and like the overall direction of the company. Is that the sort of role you think should sit with product management or is that where like UX design comes in or uh, what's your thinking of that? My relationship with Agile is interesting. I So first of all, I think I understand where kind of Agile development came from. You know, it's, it's in reaction to what was often a very old fashioned way of delivering software that was specs driven, that was document driven, that was like having BAs go and do months and months and months of, of requirements gathering without even considering what the user wanted, without even really requiring whether it's something the business needed. Building a massive document, then handing it over to development that would spend a year and a half building it, only to find that like halfway through the direction changed, the market changed. And so I guess from my perspective, like the old way of doing things was broken. As an, as an agency, as a philosophy, I'm definitely a card-carrying member of the Agile Manifesto. I think the Agile Manifesto, the idea of having conversations over documentation, the ideas of breaking complex tasks down into simple tasks, the idea of iterating, um, the idea of having flexibility of process, all of those things are really, really good. Unfortunately, on the basis of those foundations, a lot of agile practices have emerged, which are often anything but agile, that often recreate the demand and the desire that humans have for rigidity. And so I see a lot of people going, oh, well, we can't possibly do that because that's not agile, when it might be a particularly useful technique or a thing to try. So I guess, I guess the thing I push back partly is creating this false dichotomy that, that waterfall is bad and agile is good. Um, was actually there, there are lots of people who are practicing a more modern form of waterfall which are doing fantastic work and actually I see an awful lot of people struggling with incredibly rigid forms of waterfall that are struggling so much that they're drowning or are doing it in a really really um, unreformed way. So I guess it's the kind of the dogma that I sort of fight against. If I actually look and, and if you analyse the process that we use at Clear Left 
you would probably say we, we work in an incredibly agile way. We work in sprints, we work alongside developers, we, we prioritise a backlog, and we do a huge amount of sketching and all the kind of things that you would think were part of the agile methodology, um, but we're not devout about it. And I think holding these two things up as kind of like mortal enemies is not particularly useful. I actually think that we're moving into like a post-agile phase. And I think Lean UX and Lean Startup is one attempt or one lens behind looking at what's broken in both worlds. But I think the, the, the thing that I find frustrating kind of comes back to one of your other points, which is I think the waterfall big design upfront approach benefits strategic long-term thinking and vision making over kind of sort of the realities of deploying complex bits of software. So it tends to be a bit more long game. And I think because of that, it favours designers because designers like to often think about big systems. They like to think about the user experience, the user flow, the user journey, and creating holistic things that are consistent throughout the experience. I think there's an argument to say that developers like taking complex problems and breaking them down into their smaller chunks. And so I think there's a tendency that Agile does that, and Agile tends to favour a developmental mindset rather than a design mindset. Now, that's a bit of an arbitrary decision, and I actually think you can have great Agile-thinking designers that work really, really well in that framework, and I think you can have great developers working in a kind of a big systems-thinking approach. So I think there's a tendency for one or the other. And that creates these kind of sort of frictions. And I think, as I said before, I think that friction happens because we're trying to solve complex problems with a very, very simple metaphor, that we have one pace. In Agile, you work to the pace of a, a two-week sprint or a month-long sprint. And actually, I think it's more likely that organisations work across two or three different levels. There's this kind of idea of organisations basically being broken down into, I think it's, um, it's pioneers, settlers and um, town planners. And if you look at a company through that lens, the pioneers are often working, they're often very agile, they're often going out and kind of, you know, they're the part of the organisation that's kind of breaking new ground, creating new products. But the pioneers, and those are the kind of people that are probably attracted to kind of early stage startups, but pioneers can only get you so far. Pioneers don't want to put systems in place. Pioneers don't want to settle. And so you kind of need to have a kind of a settler kind of attitude. And the settlers, I think at the moment, are the ones in, in large organisations saying, well, this is all very good, you know, we've built this thing and it's all a little bit sort of ramshackled. But how do we bring some structure into it? How do we create a design language that is consistent for the users? How do we start creating tools? How do we start dividing up the land so that the pioneers can kind of, you know, we can settle it and the pioneers can utilise it better? And so I think within, within organisations, there are always people that are looking at that kind of systems optimization process stuff. And then you have the town planners, the people that are going, well, we're growing really, really big. You know, we can't just be a town full of settlers that are going out and doing their own, making their own decisions and, and, and being their own bosses. We also need to create structures and, and put governance in place, et cetera, et cetera. And these are the people that are often not thinking in terms of six-month visions or two-years visions, but in terms of five-year visions. And so there's this other kind of concept of like now, next, and future. You know, the pioneers are often working on the now, the settlers are often working on the next, and the town planners are often working on the, the future. And so you need to be able to make sure that you're working in a way that allows for all of these systems to work simultaneously. And so I think absolutely you'll tend to find that the product teams are really, really focused on the now. They're focused on the, 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 the thing they're working on at the moment. 
you tend to find that the, the product managers, if they're kind of more entry-level product managers or more entry-level UX people, they're probably somewhere focusing between the, the now and the next. They're probably focusing on creating design systems and figuring out what happens in the next block of work. And I think the, the heads of product, not necessarily the, it depends. I mean, maybe the product managers, but maybe the, the product directors and the UX directors, they're the ones that are trying to put in these systems in place to make design and technology and product scalable. And so it, it becomes, you know, it's, I, I hate the term, but like this idea that, you know, it takes a village to kind of like, you know, what is it, grow a baby, have a child, what have you. And I think the same is true of, uh, of large organisations. I think the frictions come where it, where it is the shearing layers, where it's the gaps between the now and next and the next and the future, the gaps between the town planners and the pioneers, where it creates friction. And often within organisations, one culture is dominant. In startups it tends to kind of skew towards the let's move fast and break things people. And in traditional organisations, it becomes the let's put down roots and settle and, and have lots of governance strategies and, and policies to put in place. But you need to realise actually all three are important for it to work. That's a widespread and fascinating answer. I, I like the metaphor of like pioneers and settlers. It certainly um, it kind of it resonates for sure with how, how like I've seen startups evolve. Um, maybe... We'll change tack to totally and talk about something that's more timely. Um, you've seen recently how like Facebook, for example, have unveiled this entire bots platform. And one question that that leaves for designers is an existential one, which is uh, if all if everything's just happening in chat bubbles, what are we here for? You've also seen the rise of other platforms like, say, Slack, which again raises a similar question, which is if all we're doing is feeding stuff into a chat room, uh, what are we here for? Uh, how do you think these things change the nature of design when you can literally have products that exist inside other products? I think the nature of design is changing and it will continue to change. And I don't for a minute think that the, the size and the number of designers that are required now will be the same as the size and, and, and number of designers that will be required in the future. That doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, the role of the designer will be diminished necessarily or that, you know, the agencies are dead and, and there's no future for design. But I do think, before I answer the chatbot question, I think already we're seeing a change in the market. I think a lot of kind of design activities that were once the preserve of, of kind of local freelancers have been absorbed into Shopify and Squarespace and kind of a more templated approach to kind of design, you know. And after all, like if you're running a small little B&B or, or kind of coffee shop, why pay a local designer 510k when you can buy a Shopify theme and do it yourself for, you know, a tenth of the price? So I think, I think the market's being squeezed. I think also a lot of kind of big companies have realised the power of design and are trying to bring design in-house. And so I think it's, that's reformulating the way that design agencies need to engage with their clients. Fortunately, we've never been one of those agencies that have like taken design projects that have been thrown over the fence and then come back to them six months later with a polished thing. We've always been focused around trying to build design capability and uh, design thinking into teams. So a lot of our work isn't just going in and building a thing and designing a thing, but it's upskilling their internal teams and teaching them new skills. But I think as we progress from just templated systems to in-house teams to the slow dissolution of what we would know as the interface, you know, we, we've got... Um, it used to be that the interface was basically a physical screen that you'd press and there'd be buttons, whereas now we've got natural user interfaces where you, you control things by gestures, you've got voice interfaces where you, it's all speech recognition, and now the rise of bots where the interface is often a, a chat input. 
Do I imagine in the future that every single service that we have will be, will be solely mitigated um, or, or, or delivered by voice or text input? Probably not. Do I see that the future for Uber is only by uh, phoning, uh, you know, typing in a chat box or, or asking your virtual assistant to kind of call you a taxi? Well, who knows, maybe in 10 or 20 years, I don't see that being a case immediately. So I think there'll be a long, long time when we have a big overlap of physical UIs and, and kind of voice and chat-based UIs. I mean, after all, you look around you in your home, and even though we're living in this brave new world of, of artificial intelligence, there are people still designing switches for buttons and on, on, you know, on light switches, and most of your gadgets still have a physical interface. So I think the, the digital interface isn't going away anytime soon. But I think there will be a lessening. I think there will be people switching tack, you know, as we are seeing already people moving into Internet of Things. You know, a lot of my, my digital designer friends are now moving into physical, tangible products. And I'm meeting more and more of my friends that are interested in, in exploring voice as an interface. You know, Ben Sauer, who works at Clear Left, is doing a really, really great talk at the moment on um, a voice-activated interfaces. And these interfaces still require design. Um, they might be you know, giving the seemingness of, of natural language, you know, but someone still needs to define the, the decision trees, the logic trees, how these interfaces react to you. I'm seeing probably more of a rise of content strategy in that instance. If, if the interface is a content-driven interface rather than a button-driven interface, you might see a reduction of the need of graphic designers, but you will still need people that are, are, are conversational designers or interface designers. And then you start to get into the idea of designing personality. You know, If all of these things have got neutral personalities, it would be really, really boring. And so I can see people building character and you know character animation and, and you know great character designers kind of coming to the fore. So I think you know I think we will see a small inevitable change, but I don't think it's going to be sort of a catastrophe. And I think the people who are now at the cutting edge of designing physical interfaces will slowly move into digital. Sorry, digital interfaces will slowly move into physical interfaces and voice-based interfaces. So it's a progression, I guess. That's you know the best way I think of it is um like. You know, for sure, uh, what what happens in software might actually tend towards being a little bit more, uh, you know, a little less UI and buttons and drop downs. But there's still so much of the world yet to be designed that I don't think designers need to be worrying anytime soon. And I think also, like there there is there is room for lots of different complexity. I think like a lot of the kind of like the the one function startups that were all the rage a few years ago in Silicon Valley, like that did one thing and did one thing really well. I think a lot of those will end up stopping to be apps in and of themselves and will be intelligent agents. There'll be plugins to kind of voice activated systems. So there's a lot, you know, those those single use things will basically become APIs. There'll be a really, really simple dumb service that doesn't need much interface. I think also we might find that there are complicated things. You know, I've been playing with Amy, which is um, extra AI is a is a PA um, of artificial intelligence kind of booking engine, and, and and that's you know that's meaning you know the, the interface for that was you know um, email and and. Um, my my gmail calendar and that provides the glue between the two interfaces but those interfaces are still important you know yeah. so uh, th quite often i think those those chatbots and those um, um artificial intelligences might just like you know, almost be if this then that they might string a number of physical interfaces together and then i guess sort of finally uh i don't know um 
there, was, there will be certain things that are just going to be too complicated to, to automate, um, at, least, sure. at least in the, in, in the short term. And so I think, you know, what you might find is you might find designers moving away from these single-use apps and maybe, you know, trying to solve some of the, 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 the bigger, more complicated interface challenges. You know, I can't see necessarily a flight cockpit being automated solely by voice with no outputs, no buttons, no dials, no altimeters anytime soon. Even if that cockpit is being driven by a self-driving vehicle, there will need to be ha like designers designing dashboard inputs to monitor those activities for, you know, for a good 20 years or so. But you know, I think, frankly, trying to speculate further than about five or six years is pointless at this stage. Given how a dodgy theory can be, uh, the idea of a pilot flying using voice control would be uh, nothing short of terrifying. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for your time today, Andy. This has been really, really, uh, I mean, we, have, we had a lot more questions. It would have been awesome to get through. But uh, thank you so much for your time. I've really, really enjoyed having you back here again. And we'll, maybe we'll leave it a couple more years and uh, see what other amazing articles have been spawned from this chat. But uh, once again, it's been wonderful to have you here. I'd love that. It's always a pleasure chatting. So, yeah, I look forward to our next opportunity. Excellent. Thanks so much. Cheers, man. Bye. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, just visit soundcloud.com forward slash intercom. And if you want to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.io.